Oh, good evening, everybody. Uh, this this is, uh, I got chills in this one. This is, <laughs> I, I can't believe that this person uh, is going to be on our program, but they are. And uh, circuitous route of how we ended up having the privilege to have them on our live stream uh, was a result of the work of some friends that I had the privilege to know over a number of years that met this individual. I, I've seen this individual on national shows, uh, one of the frontline doctors, and uh, and then to have the opportunity to have them on our program is, is unbelievable. And I have to share with you all, you need to stay tuned throughout the entire program because as you know, God speak, uh, we've been wide open, uh, no masks, no social distancing since May 31st, no reported cases of COVID, let alone anyone being hospitalized or any deaths attributed to our, our church being opened. And and the questions swirling in California uh, with the draconian measures of the governor and the lockdown and watching what's happening to our economy and to our families and all that's taking place. But then we're all shamed and, and, and brought to this place where if you're not wearing a mask, you're somehow not loving your neighbor. If you're not social distancing, you're not, somehow not loving your neighbor. We're seeing the swirl of in information with different medical treatments and, and watching as our own programs have been censored when we brought in specific doctors. And I, I pray that, that uh, this program's not censored. But tonight, you're going to hear from a doctor, a uh, medical doctor, uh, who, who went for his, started undergraduate college at, at 14 years of age, Providence College, and then ended, ended up graduating uh, medical school from Columbia University. And uh, he has taken on what would be considered the word of God in the medical community, which is either the first or second greatest publication in, in medicine, which is the Lancet. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and, and took on uh, this organization. And he's been retweeted by Elon Musk and, and did this single-handedly. He's a, a brilliant guy, pleasant as can be. And you are now going to have the privilege that we're going to get to enjoy as well to meet what I consider to be a, a warrior for truth uh, in the medical community. Please welcome Dr. James Todaro. Hey, Doc, how are you? Man, high expectations going forward. No, I'm just kidding. Thanks so much for that wonderful intro. Well, I, I have to say that, you know, the World Health Organization, um, governments across the world all formulated their approach to COVID-19 based on a Lancet study and, and this, this surgisphere with Sapan Desai, Dr. Sapan Desai, and it, 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 it seems as though everything that, that they've implemented in their governments, with the exception of Sweden and a couple of other nations, has been a result of all of that. And here you are, uh, somebody working full-time, married, three kids, uh, on your part-time with your, your understanding of medicine, your understanding of research, you're able to dig deep and find this to be a surgosphere to be just a, a shell of, of, it doesn't even really exist. It's fraudulent data that they were standing behind and you exposed it. And you've been on the cutting edge of this since day one. Can you tell everybody out there? Cause this is probably the first time most folks have heard of this because anything you're going to do is going to be censored by the tech oligarchy. So let's, let's try to keep it going before they do that to us. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, that's absolutely right. I, and I think that the reason that I've, kind of been successful and able to do this, whereas these well-funded organizations have not pointed out these, these obvious 
um, either fraudulent data in this case or kind of potential therapeutics is, uh, you know, I think there's corruption going on behind the scenes. There's, there's no reason the scientists at the World Health Organization who received billions of dollars collectively uh, didn't detect that that Lancet study was fraudulent. And for any of your listeners who might not uh, know what happened with that study, it was a study published uh, back in May 22nd that included almost 100,000 patients, supposedly, and it showed hydroxychloroquine increased the risk of death, doubled your risk of dying if you took it, and also caused dangerous heart arrhythmias. And due to that study, the World Health Organization suspended all of its clinical trials worldwide on hydroxychloroquine. Dr. Fauci went on CNN in an interview and said, this is shortly after the study came out, so he's almost certainly referring to the study, They said that it looks like uh, hydroxychloroquine causes cardiovascular problems. Um, there's no reason that myself or a lot of independent researchers who I was networking with were the ones that detected that this was an entirely fraudulent study. This should have been detected quickly by, first of all, by the Lancet in their peer review process before it even got published, but right. certainly by the World Health Organization or the NIH. Um, and that study has been conclusive. Like some people say, oh, uh, it was, uh, you know, retracted because of flawed methodology or flawed data. That, that's not the case. It was fabricated data. The data never existed. Um, and immediately after it was retracted, the Surges for website was pulled down. Uh, you know, Dr. Sapan Desai, who was one of the co-authors in running Surgisphere, kind of disappeared from the face of the earth. And it's incredible that the, the kind of these organizations just kind of let that slide. Like here, here, a prominent study published in one of the most prestigious medical journals, Harvard author, as the lead author, it's like, okay, let's just let that slide. Let's just forget about that. No investigation, nothing. Whereas if that was, you know, someone else supporting, let's say, hydroxychloroquine or something that's more controversial, I mean, they would have they would have, uh, you know, demolished that person. And you, you saw this early on, especially in Australia, when they were listing the number of COVID deaths and they were exceeding just the number of deaths in Australia. And, and that was a, yeah. So that was the first big clue is the number of deaths in Australia was more, it was less, the actual number of deaths in Australia was less than those reported in that study. So that was the first big hint. After I saw that, why I became very suspicious is they clumped the data, they based it by continent, okay? Oh, and so Af if you're Africa, trying, Africa was one of the key triggers too. Africa yeah. was another one. But they based it by continent, and so why would you do that? Why would you not give any details on you know, hospitals per country or anything like that? And to me, immediately it was suspicious that they're trying to hide data, okay? Because it's gonna be much harder to detect fraudulent data, made up numbers, if it's in a huge clump of, you know, mm -hmm. huge grouping of, of patients. And Australia is, you know, its own continent, so they kind of got busted there. That was tough. But then, yeah, there was data from Africa that was just, you know, incredible, required incredible electronic medical records. Um, you know, for North America, for the study, it would have had to pretty much capture every single COVID-19 patient in North America. And, you know, they claimed that they had data from about 671 hospitals. It was just impossible. You needed a massive team to do that. And even with a massive team, there's no organization that's been able to do that to date. And they were saying they're using artificial intelligence and machine learning and all stuff, which I know how those systems work. And I knew that they weren't capable of doing that with their five-person team. Two of them, you know, I'm sure, but one of them was a science fiction writer. Another one was an erotic model. And so it just, it wasn't, it wasn't the team that could pull that off, I don't think. And, and, and when you do the, the Wayback Machine for Surgisphere, there was no existence of this company. And it's almost like it appeared out of thin air. It, almost, it, it, it seemed orchestrated. And now they've completely disappeared. But there's no retraction. There's, it, it, 
it, it just seemed as an attempt to just try to dismiss therapeutics. Yeah, so that was the name of the article I wrote on, uh, I think it was May 28th or 29th, was a study out of thin air. Um, and then The Guardian came out with their own piece investigating Surgisphere a few days later. Um, but that's essentially what it was, a study out of thin air. No one saw it coming. And when it came, all of a sudden, these, these organizations just strangely embraced it. And, you know, it's, it was really unfortunate because it had long-lasting effects. You know, the mainstream media then ran with headlines saying that the World Health Organization suspends clinical trials of hydroxychloroquine because it's too dangerous. So that's the message that went out to the general public, to politicians, to physicians even, was this medication is actually too dangerous to even be used in a controlled study. So it's definitely too, too dangerous for you to give to your patients. And that headline went worldwide. When the study was retracted, it gets about 2% of that degree of attention. And in people's minds, it's already branded hydroxychloroquine is dangerous. And so they kind of, you know, I think achieved their goal in branding it that way without, with the retraction, even though it was retracted, I don't think it really reversed that message all that much. And the, and the countless people who've died. Yeah. Not, not having the clear data and, and we see these frontline doctors that you were a part of talking about entire ICUs being cleared with the application of hydroxychloroquine, uh, zinc, also with a, a Z-pack. Uh, and, and it was working and still works. But, but because of the way it was presented, it's, it's been detrimental to our, our, the world. Absolutely. Um, I've been networking with a, a tremendous number of physicians over the past uh, six months or so and have heard incredible successes with the medication. There's been a huge number of observational studies that have come out in support of hydroxychloroquine. The studies that don't support hydroxychloroquine are the ones that are, um, you know, I don't, you know, terribly designed. They're either studies that look at it, treatment in very late-stage disease, which many of the physicians treating patients with this medication since March have been saying it's most effective early in disease, within the first few days of symptoms, maybe a week of symptoms. And many of those studies looked at it in very sick patients, patients who are either already in the ICU or um, on their way to the ICU. Um, they, you know, one of the randomized controlled trials that's always quoted is the couple out of Minnesota, which did look at early treatment and prophylactic treatment, but they were actually online surveys. It was where the, the, uh, uh, you know, anyone could sign up for it and submit their symptoms in like a questionnaire. And based on that questionnaire was how they determined if you had COVID-19 or not. They actually only did about testing and about 33% of the people tested positive. The rest, it was just based off this questionnaire of symptoms. So it wasn't really... It was about as, uh, as quality, the quality of the diagnosis was about as good as a WebMD diagnosis. <laughs> so that, I mean, that's re realistic. That's what it was. And so that's what they're calling, and that's what Dr. Fauci alluded to, is the randomized controlled trials that show it doesn't work in early disease. That was what it's based on. And if you actually look at that data, it actually trended toward hydroxychloroquine being effective. Now, a way that it would have not been clinically significant is if you had a lot of people in there who didn't really have COVID-19. Hydroxychloroquine probably isn't going to help people who are coming in with, you know, other colds or you know, allergies or headaches. And so if it truly had 100% of people who actually had COVID-19, it may have actually even reached the point of, of being effective and, and clinically significant. Now, you're in, you're in Michigan. Did, did, uh, did your governor ban hydroxychloroquine? Essentially. 
Um, it was to the point where physicians were afraid to prescribe it. They were afraid that um, they would get their medical licenses suspended, that uh, they would risk losing their job. And most pharmacies were not were kind of blocking those prescriptions. They, they, um, they've done really that to us in California as well. Right. And so that's actually, we saw that in many states uh, across the country. Um, that was kind of a similar approach. And uh, yeah, Micah. Yeah, I was just saying, in, I, kinda, I kind of view doctors in the same way right now that I'm viewing pastors. And you, I can wrap my head around nefarious politicians, but it's really hard to wrap, like, doctors that would be nefarious. And so we've seen as pastors, other pastors, that same thing that, that it's not that they're, they're evil or they want to do harm, but they're just, they're scared to go, this is right, because they don't want to lose this or they don't want to lose that. Do you, do you see the same thing amongst doctors and the vast majority that, the vast majority of them aren't nefarious in that they, they're trying to promote bad information, but it's just fear? Yeah, so I would say it's two different things. So it's one fear. You know, the, they ultimately, they don't want to lose their job. They don't want to get their medical license. And they don't want to have to appear before uh, the medical boards and try to explain their actions. Um, the second thing is, is, you know, a lot of these doctors are, are working full time. And so they are kind of going off recommendations maybe their medical director makes. Or, you know, oftentimes, you know, sometimes headlines and what they're seeing, what, what they consider prominent physicians to be saying and so when they, even them, when they see those things, like the World Health Organization doesn't recommend this, Dr. Fauci doesn't recommend this, you know, they might not have the time to do the research themselves. And so they just feel like, oh, it's probably safer not to prescribe it, as opposed to actually digging into the studies and determining, you know, which studies are actually, you know, valuable or insightful and which ones are, are probably not relevant. Now, uh I had a chance to tell you uh, early on before we, we went live uh, what we're kind of facing here in California, especially our congregation. And, you know, fear has been instilled in the populace. Um, and, and yet one of the things that we're seeing in California, the reinfection fear, the, the, mm-hmm. re-in, the, the idea of the reinfection panic, that somehow this is going to resurge and you can reinfect. Can you... Can you touch on that? Yeah, so I want to first preface it that there's only been a couple kind of truly confirmed reinfections. So what was kind of considered the first confirmed reinfection case was one that came out about maybe four or five days ago. And that setting was it was a 33-year-old man who's from Hong Kong, had COVID-19 in March, recovered from that, tested negative, and then came down, you know, was coming back actually into, into Hong Kong and had routine screening at the airport. So he had no symptoms or anything. Routine screening was determined to have a positive test for SARS-CoV-2. Uh, went to the hospital, got confirmed that he, he had the test. They did some genome sequencing of the virus. Um, and then he got, and then, you know, he eventually tested negative. Um, I think this case is kind of interesting for a couple of reasons. So first of all, he was entirely asymptomatic. Okay, at no point did he have a headache or a fever or a cough or anything like that that he had with the first illness. Now, I think that could be relevant because it could show that his immune system did effectively work, okay? Uh, he, which I can talk about a little bit later, but there is a part of your immune system called T cells that can help fight infections. It's, you have antibodies and then you have T cells. And he didn't actually have antibodies uh, from that first infection. They tested him, he didn't have antibodies. 
but he wasn't he was asymptomatic didn't have any symptoms and so it's possible that his t cells had then recognized the virus were able to attack and destroy the infected cells before he actually exhibited any symptoms that's possibly again this we're talking about you know this specific case so you can't really make any broad you know analyses or decisions off that but in his case, it was possibly a sign that the immune system worked as it should. There's another case that just came out today, which I've been able to look at a little bit, but I haven't been able to actually dive in deep to study. But this person did have symptoms both times. Um, the second case is a little bit you know, interesting in the sense that his infections are only about 19 to 20 days apart, um, which you know, it's possible that maybe he still had a lingering infection that then kind of resurfaced again. Um, the authors kind of say that because of genome sequencing, it's a different strain, that it, that's probably not the case. But, uh, you know, that's unlikely. But what's also very unlikely is these reinfection cases. So it's kind of, I think, tough to determine with the infections that close together um, in that particular case. But at this point, I wouldn't be tremendously alarmed on this reinfection. I think it's definitely being focused on by at least a lot of the, the media outlets I'm seeing. But I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't be fearful because of that at this point. Uh, especially as we watch uh, concerts going on in Wuhan right now with no social distancing and no masks. It doesn't seem as though... Uh, you saw that photo of the the, the giant pool with everyone yeah. in two yeah. having a good time. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. they, they, they seem to have infected the world and now they're having a party. And, yeah. and, uh, you, you, you touched on T-cell immunity. What does that mean in relation to like herd immunity? Can you help people understand that better? Yeah, so um, I'll do a, like a 20-second tutorial on how the immune system works just to give people an idea, and then we can go from there. But your immune system is what fights off diseases. You have an innate immune system, which is uh, kind of fights general uh, infections and pathogens, and then you have the adaptive immune system. And this is the one that's relevant for fighting off, say, viruses. And the adaptive immune system consists of two different parts. You have B cells, which produce antibodies, which is what a lot of people know about, and they know about them in terms of vaccines. And then you have T cells, which T cells can attack infected cells. So we can learn to recognize and attack, attack those infected cells. And so there's been a tremendous amount of research these past couple months on T cells in terms of COVID-19. And what they found is that there's a substantial portion of the population that actually possess T cells that recognize SARS-CoV-2 even before the pandemic started. So they took blood samples from people from 2019, so before the pandemic, exposed those blood samples to SARS-CoV-2, and what they found is that the T cells specifically reacted with the virus. And the researchers hypothesized that these people had some degree of crossover immunity from the common cold coronaviruses. So there's four uh, coronaviruses that, that generally make up the common cold. And this kind of makes sense. Our immune system is smart. It can learn to recognize similar parts of these viruses. Um, and so what the, the kind of the studies vary, but they average about 50% of the population in those samples had you know, immunity or some protective effect uh, from T cells with SARS-CoV-2. Now, the, T cells are not well understood. The immune system is very complex. But if you kind of take this piece of the puzzle and you then look at the real world evidence, some things start to maybe make some sense. So first of all, you know, there's a large percent of, the, of people who get infected or test positive for SARS-CoV-2 that are asymptomatic, never have any symptoms. Now, it's possible, and they, and they don't have antibodies. So it's possible that they have these T cells 
they recognize, they're able to attack these infected cells and destroy them before the person even uh, needs to kind of develop any symptoms or kind of exhibits any signs of being sick. Um, and then the person er eradicates the virus and it's gone. The second thing that's very interesting in terms of herd immunity is, you know, a few months ago, we heard from all the infectious disease experts and epidemiologists that we had no immunity, that you had to hit about 60 to 70%, at least 60 to 70% of people infected before we reached some degree of herd immunity. But we're not really seeing that, you know, across the kind of hardest hit regions of the world. So when you look at Lombardy, Madrid, Geneva, Stockholm, uh, New York City, London, what you see is infections kind of based on antibody testing peak at about 20%. So not 60 or 70, but about 20%, and then they begin to go down. Deaths begin to go down. And you really don't see a second wave of deaths. And now some people will say this is due to masks and lockdowns, but we all know that those lockdown ordinances and masks came at different times, yet each of those kind of densely populated areas hit about 20%. And, you know, the great example as a control is Sweden, which I think you have a um, – graph that you can throw up you want there to pull that of, up, Micah? Uh, kind of Sweden's daily deaths over the past. Sweden's daily deaths, then, if you can pull that up. And so what that, that kind of bar chart shows is you can see that, you know, really like near the peak of that, that kind of daily death count, you hit about 20% affected based on serology testing. And then it begins to go down. And, and now you can see that we're about, we're less than one death per day in the entire 10.2 million uh, person population in Sweden. And this is without mandatory masks, without mandatory lockdowns, okay? Wow. And so, you know, that looks like the chart of herd immunity. Yep. Um, and so what this means for other parts of the world is that many of those areas that hit 20% are likely either approaching herd immunity or may actually already be there and could safely open up with a, you know, very little risk of a second wave of deaths. They, they had the same in South Korea because by the time they applied masks and social distancing, they had already peaked, as I recall, in the data. So trying to attribute that to any of it, yeah. There's a lot of different areas that this show. You know, people, yeah, people attribute to masks and lockdowns, but a lot of those areas, those came after the, the peak already was in. What was the Especially question, masks. What was the question you were asking earlier? I, I was asking about when I was listening to our governor's press conference, he's giving all this credit to social distancing and masks. I have not seen one single study like uh, how HCQ has worked. In other words, I take 100 patients, I apply it to them, here's my success rate. There's no study that shows I've had 100 people wear masks and 100 people not wear masks, and this is the difference. I've, so where's the proof when they keep on saying that masks and social distancing is helpful. Right. So um, social distancing, I don't really know of, of any studies done on that at all. Masks, there's a couple, but they're kind of very generic studies that, you know, in my mind, don't really give us a real convincing story that masks are actually a thing that's helping in this. Um, you know, there's a lot of variables in there. Um, and so for, you know, kind of just generally thinking about it, if you're going to make these mask mandates and force people to wear them and have penalties or fines, or in some states make them wear them in their homes if they have a guest, I mean, even if you think that is right, you'd have to have a tremendous amount of evidence, I think, showing that that works, I think, to make that 
you know, a law or an ordinance. I mean, this is not something that the American people are accustomed to. This isn't like, you know, 75% of us were wearing masks, you know, six or seven months ago, and now we're just kind of making it a rule. This is, right. you know, it, it changes the way we interact with others. It's something that we're, we're just not really for. And so to really institute that mandate, if you are at all, there's got to be a lot more evidence, I think, than what's available today. Yeah, mo most of the studies I see are usually a cartoon which shows a cough goes off at six feet. That's the most scientific study I've seen is one of the cartoons with a, a loogie going six feet and <laughs> dropping off to the ground or something like that. Yeah. is not a scientific term. Okay, sorry. sorry. <laughs> well, either the study was. Hey, another thing that's come up over, uh, what is it, a couple days ago, this new CDC guideline of not testing people if they're asymptomatic and, 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 no, um, and they've been exposed. What's, what's your thoughts on that, that new guideline? I, I actually am kind of a, uh, in agreement with it. So I think that what we're getting very caught up on is these new number of cases. Um, and, you know, cases go up in certain areas, but deaths either are going down or staying level. And so kind of a lot of this fear is just driven by these new cases. And you're getting a lot of these new cases from testing people. And we don't know, I think, uh, you know, a lot of those new cases that go into statistics, how many people are they, do they test twice for it and they're positive? Was it a false positive test? You know, we saw the governor of Ohio get tested positive for it when Trump, when the president was visiting, and then four hours later he tested negative. You know, how many does that happen to the people who don't have the luxury of getting a second test? Does his first positive test go as a statistic as a new case? Um, and so, to me, I think what's far more important is the deaths. And I think that you know you can look at cases and be like, oh, cases are going up and deaths are lag. And so that's kind of the first reason cases were kind of important. You see cases go up and you know, okay, maybe deaths are gonna start hitting a couple weeks later. But we're, we're generally not seeing that in the place, especially in the places that are hardest hit. Um, and once you kind of hit that peak, it, you know, it really seems like deaths are really should be more the focus as opposed to cases. Yeah. Uh, and, and the other one was the NFL players. Uh, they were all false positives. And they, they had to go right. and retest on all that. Yep. And that was high profile. Uh, you, you brought a slide uh, about the, the journal name uh, the impact factor. Uh, do you want to touch on that? Sure, yeah. Let's, um, let's bring that up. You can talk about it. So what is this? Yeah, so this is, uh, this is basically impact factors. Impact factor for journals is, uh, it's kind of their way of gauging how much impact the journal has in the scientific or medical community. And so as you can see, you have New England Journal of Medicine at the top, you have Lancet and JAMA. Um, so Lancet's the one that did a fraudulent study. But the reason I, I, I tweeted about this, I think yesterday or the day before, is because it's becoming glaringly evident to me that these journals are really only publishing uh, anti-hydroxychloroquine studies or studies that seem to increase fear, okay? And it's regardless of the quality of the studies, it seems like. So if we kind of just work our way through this list, I guess, if we look at the New England Journal of Medicine, they published a study that included the Surgisphere data as well that was retracted, embarrassingly. They also published the uh, study from Minnesota that showed hydroxychloroquine doesn't work for prophylaxis, but that study was really just an anonymous online survey. It does not really qualify as a true randomized controlled trial and probably under normal circumstances would not have gotten published in the New England Journal of Medicine. You have um, JAMA, so the Journal of the American Medical Association. Um, they published a study that was done in Brazil 
where the researchers actually gave truly toxic doses of chloroquine to patients, so much so that they stopped enrollment of the study after just a fraction of patients were enrolled because the deaths in their, in their high-dose group were, were just far, far greater than in mm. the low-dose group. So they, you know, that study should probably be retracted because it just kind of gives the impression that uh, hydroxychloroquine is dangerous. When re in reality, they were giving just high doses of it. And those British, and those, uh, those, uh, that, that study was done in Brazil, and those researchers are actually under investigation by the Brazil government, I believe. Um, Annals of Internal Medicine, so that's number five on the list. They also published a study um, by University of Minnesota that was, again, really an online survey as opposed to a randomized controlled trial, and Amazing. probably under normal circumstances wouldn't have gotten in that prestigious of a journal. Um, they showed hydroxychloroquine didn't work in early treatment. And so really what you see is out of these top five journals, they're basically just publishing anything that comes their way, fraudulent or not, online survey or not, that shows hydroxychloroquine doesn't work. Which raises the question, you can say, well, why are they doing this, right? Yeah. Like, what is their goal here? They're supposed to be peer-reviewed and, and, and of, of the most serious of, of, of journals where doctors look to. Why would they do this? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, they're somewhat beholden to big pharma, okay? Uh, you know, a large majority of their publishing revenue comes from big pharma. That's, that's not a secret. So even the editor-in-chief of The Lancet, Richard Horton, complained about this 17 years ago. So in 2003, he was saying that, you know, the, the influence that Big Pharma has over what they publish is just tremendous. And this has been said by former editors of the New England Journal of Medicine as well. She's called uh, these journals basically marketing machines for Big Pharma. Hmm. Um, and this problem has only gotten worse. The amount of spending in, you know, in, the, in advertising and sponsoring in these journals has gone up. The amount of revenue that comes from big pharmaceutical drugs continues to go up. So it's only a bigger problem today than it actually was 15 years ago. And I think that ties into a lot why these studies are anti-hydroxychloroquine, because hydroxychloroquine is a cheap generic drug. It's been around for 65 years. There's, no one's making money off it. It's like 10 or 12 manufacturers in the U.S. Compare that to something like remdesivir, that new drug that uh, came out from Gilead, or even vaccine candidates. It's a tremendous amount of money to be made there. Um, so, um, you know, it was funny. I was actually, I was on the Lancet website a couple weeks ago, and across the top banner is an advertisement for Gilead, one of their drugs. And it's just, yeah. you know, it's right there. Just to, just to clarify that impact factor, it, is it a different way of saying that's their credibility factor? They, that by them publishing it, the chances of it being accepted is higher, uh, the higher you are on the list? Is that the way you interpret the impact factor? Um, so impact factor um, can be looked at kind of in two different ways. So one, how much uh, kind of influence this the, a publication in this journal will have over the medical community. Uh -huh. And it's actually, to get an article accepted in those top journals is very difficult. Hmm. So I know in medical school and residency, uh, when any of my colleagues got a, a study published in there, it was like a day to celebrate. It was like, this mm. is incredible. My study was published in there. Mm. And, you know, and for, for physicians, if something is published in those journals, you know, that's almost the equivalent of, you know, it's in the Bible. This is a pretty mm. well-vetted study, and you can probably trust the results as opposed to in a smaller journal where you can, you, you know, you might have to dig into it a little yourself to see how valid mm. the data is. Mm. So, so you're talking um, that these are influenced by big pharma, and 
We've heard the president say that, that he was taking it for precautionary purposes, hydroxychloroquine. And then last night, even in his acceptance speech for the nomination, he talked about convalescent plasma and, and uh, the promising aspects of that. I want to touch on those two things, not too much so we don't get, you know, censored. But then we're going to, I want to jump over to the picture of, uh, well, the, the, the studies on hydroxychloroquine in, I think, Belgium and Italy, the, the latest. Yep. And then I want to show everybody that uh, after you touch on those, I want to show everybody how by the implementation of fear and removing these accessible treatments, uh, you know, to get a picture of really what, what are the, the common causes of death in Europe that was a few weeks ahead of us and, and suffered greatly. I want them to see that graph that you brought. So kind of stage it with that whole picture, if you would. Sure. Um, so I guess I can uh, start off with convalescent plasma, then this is kind of another therapy. So really there's kind of been three EUAs that have been issued, um, some taken back, but for treatment of COVID-19. So you had hydroxychloroquine, remdesivir, and now you have convalescent plasma. Um, so convalescent plasma is a part of the is a part of the blood from people who are recovered from COVID-19. So plasma is the liquid component of the blood, and then you have the cellular component. So they remove the cells, and they have the liquid part, and that liquid part then contains antibodies. And so what they do, and this is a, an old technique. This is something that's been around for almost 100 years. So this right. isn't kind of new technology or anything. Um, but what they do is they then take that plasma with the antibodies and inject it and transfuse it into patients who have COVID-19 with the hopes that the antibodies will help neutralize the virus and get them better. Um, the EUA was just issued a few days ago, and it was primarily based off a study that was done at the Mayo Clinic. And what they did is they looked at about 35,000 patients. They didn't have a control, so it wasn't a truly randomized controlled trial, but they just looked at whether the patients received plasma early versus a little bit later, so within three days or after three days, and they're kind of thought, thinking was, if there's a difference between these two groups, particularly with the early group uh, doing better, then there's a sign that the plasma worked. And it did show that it decreased uh, mortality about 30% uh, compared to the patients who received plasma a little bit later. Um, I had a couple uh, you know, surprises with that study to me that I, that I found intriguing. So one is they were very sick patients, actually, which I wouldn't really expect plasma to be that effective in late stages of the disease. disease. Kind of once you're in the, the pulmonary phase and the hyperinflammation phase, which is much later, you know, our understanding of the virus is, you know, at, or the disease is at that point, it's, um, it's kind of beyond the virus. It's almost your immune system has gone haywire, and that's the problem. That's what causes the cardiac issues, the pulmonary issues. And so neutralizing the virus might not really have that much effect. But, I mean, it did, according to this study, it had very sick patients. About half of them were already in the ICU before treatment began. About 25% were already mechanically ventilated. So I found that very surprising um, uh, that it showed a difference. Um, and so I'd like to see kind of another study that actually supported that because there are actually randomized controlled trials that showed that it didn't work, that there was no difference, uh, comparing no treatment to convalescent plasma. Um, the second thing that people have to be aware of with convalescent plasma is um, it really only showed a difference in the patients who received the high, kind of high-quality plasma, the one that was really rich in the antibodies, so IgG, the long-lasting antibodies. And you know, that plasma is kind of hard to come by 
uh, particularly now when most cases are mild to moderate disease, um, you know, finding that, that rich plasma. Um, so there's a little bit of a supply issue there. Um, it's one more tool that seems relatively safe to use, though, so an EUA for it kind of makes sense. Um, but, uh, you know, at this point, it's kind of tough to question. It's, you know, sure. it's difficult to question how effective it is. Um, let's see, where did you want me to launch off from well, let, there? Let, let's do this. The hydroxychloroquine studies, the new, latest of, in Belgium and Italy, um, right. and, then, and then we'll jump over to just the, what, what's attributed to death in Europe so they can see that chart. But we'll do it after you... You talk about those new studies, maybe. Yeah, so um, hydroxychloroquine is still being studied. It's not, it's not dead since the Lancet study. Um, and it was actually the largest uh, observational analysis that was ever put out um, just a few days ago. And that came from Belgium, where they looked at about 8,000 patients, um, a little over half who received hydroxychloroquine versus those who did not. And what it showed was about a 30% benefit in the patients who received hydroxychloroquine. Now this was in hospitalized patients. It was still in the early stages of the disease though. It was uh, within about five or six days of, uh, of symptom onset. So much earlier than some of those other studies that showed hydroxychloroquine didn't work. The ones that were kind of starting treatment like 10 days or two yeah. weeks into the infection. Um, and then Italy did an observational study as well, about 3,500 patients, which actually showed a very similar result about a 30% decrease in their patient population. So we just, this is just more observational studies that show that uh, hydroxychloroquine works. Again, it's not a randomized controlled trial, but there's a tremendous amount of, of observational evidence that it works. And so to me still, and I'm open to, to changing my opinion if different evidence comes out, but based on the best evidence available, it's hydroxychloroquine in early treatment of COVID-19 is probably still the best therapy. What, a, what about in those studies, was there any side effects that would uh, discourage somebody from taking that? Yeah, so the big concern is this prolonged QT interval. And what that is, is on your EKG, your heart rhythm, there's kind of two parts. And if those two intervals, if that interval becomes too long, then theoretically your heart can go into an arrhythmia. And then from there, if it's a dangerous arrhythmia, then you may even go into cardiac arrest. Now there's a tremendous amount of drugs that cause prolong QT that prolong this interval, hundreds of them. Mm -hmm. So hydroxychloroquine is not unique in that sense. It's not like a uniquely dangerous heart you know, drug for the heart. Um, and so some of these studies will show that that QT interval will become prolonged, but I've yet to see a study that actually, a, a non-fraudulent study that actually shows that it results in greater mortality um, from those effects. Mm -hmm. And just to kind of give you an idea of how safe hydroxychloroquine is, is it's been used for 65 years billions of prescriptions, at least over a billion prescriptions or a billion doses. And there's been about last before the pandemic, which is hard to trust information and compounding variables during the mm -hmm. pandemic. But before the pandemic, about less than 40 or 50 deaths over the last 65 years. So this Jeez. is a drug that is extremely safe. It was over the counter in a number of, of countries. Um, and, uh, and so yeah, to vilify it as the, the medication that's causing these heart problems, I think is, is disingenuous. Mm -hmm. We, we, uh, if we show this next slide, you want to talk on it? It's just fascinating sure. to me because the panic, and especially we, we just had another local newspaper come out and show on a graph, really, you know, this is the number of positive cases. And, and you know, it's, it's shocking. And that's what the press is putting forward. But then we, we show the number of deaths. We show the, the percentage of those tested positive that, and it's just so drastic 
And when you get a when you get to see it with your eyes, it kind of calms everybody down a little bit. You want to talk on this graph? Yeah, sure. So this is a graph that I put together, a chart that I put together yesterday. Um, and what I was interested in is, you know, we all know that there, there was a number of deaths from COVID-19, uh, particularly in March and April in the U.S. And, and Europe. Okay, that is true. But I was looking at now today, you know, because we still have lockdowns. We still have these mask mandates in a lot of places. From COVID-19, you know, what is the real impact now? On, on people, you know, you know, all-cause deaths compared to some of the other uh, causes of mortality. And so this is for Europe. I, I picked Europe. Um, and I looked at the basically the number of daily deaths per 10 million people. Um, and I looked at this comparing the, the cases or the, uh, yeah, the number of deaths over um, a one month. So this is for, you know, most of August and then some of the late part of July, so the past 30 days. And, you know, as you can see on the, you know, on the chart, you obviously have cancer and heart disease, which are way up there, which this is important because a lot of patients were afraid to go to the hospital or maybe still afraid to go to the hospital yep. um, because of, you know, COVID-19. And they have now, they're missing, they're getting diagnosed with cancer late, heart disease. They're coming in with cardiac, you know, signs of a previous heart attack where they could have been caught early. Maybe they could have had a you know, a stent place that would have uh, helped their morbidity, um, but they didn't. And so if any of these numbers, which I kind of moving my mouse on the screen, which you can't see, but if, you know, any of these heart disease or cancer deaths, if that increases by just a little bit, as you can see, that will really drown out the super small number of COVID-19 deaths we're seeing now, which is about 1.9 deaths per day per 10 million persons in Europe. And if you then compare that to even suicide, suicide is significantly higher than that. And so the mental stress and these lockdowns, unemployment, maybe more inclination to do drugs or drink, if those suicides just go up a little bit, then you, you might even over, you know, shadow the, the deaths entirely from COVID-19. Yeah. Is that 1.9? Are we assuming those are all deaths from COVID, not deaths with COVID? So that's an absolutely great point. It's probably almost certainly lower than that. Um, uh, and yeah, as you point out, those are with COVID-19 and I'm sure there's a substantial portion there that did not die from COVID. Yeah. So it could be even lower. Comparing the, I did the same thing in our county and it's very similar at, with, in, in contrast to car accidents. And someone actually comment, commented on last night's live stream that if it wasn't for the media and the news, today would, have, would be no different than five months ago. We wouldn't know a difference. We wouldn't be able to quanti like quantitatively quantify, yeah. <laughs> quantify a difference in, in our society. And I see that same thing with like, when you compare it to car accidents, you go, when's the last time you heard about the most recent car accident death in your county? It's like, I don't really, maybe if I like somehow it affected someone in traffic, maybe I hear about, yeah, it was a fatal car accident. But you, you don't just hear about the, the continual, like, hey, by the way, someone died in a car accident today. Or, hey, by the way, someone... And everybody has to stop driving. Right, yeah. exactly. That's, yeah. that's what I was going to say. Right, yeah. right. Is, would you, like, people think that's crazy to sit there and say, oh, everyone should stop driving because we have, you know, 1.6 out of 10 right. million deaths per day. So, obviously, we have to stop driving. But that's essentially what we did in the past six months. Yeah. You know, we, like, six months ago, if you said, oh, we're going to mandate masks, you're going to stay at home, 
might have to even wear a mask at your home, definitely at the beach, because that's important. Right. People would have been like, that's absolutely crazy. Well, that's what they did. They essentially, they stopped driving the economy. They stopped people from driving their lives. Yep. And, and, and now over, you know, a 1.9, you know, daily deaths out of 10 million people. That's what we're kind of there for, I guess. Yeah. You know, the, uh, it's, it's, it's so nice to have you on the 150th episode, which is an anniversary for us. But our first 30 or 40 episodes were all about numbers. We looked at the numbers every day. And then... We've come to it as we've gotten the more testing. One one-hundredth of one percent is our death rate in our county. And when you quote that to people or you give it to the press, and that's assuming all of those are from, which they're not, um, people just, eh, whatever, we'll still do all this stuff. One one-hundredth of one percent. The numbers don't affect anybody's thought process or opinion or all the studies that you quote. It doesn't seem to make any difference anymore. Yeah, I mean, you have, you know, you have the people that watch CNN, MSNBC, and you know, they just do whatever they're told, yeah. you know? Yeah. And then you have the people that actually are looking for, you know, better information. They want to kind of do a little bit, because even finding uh, oftentimes a podcast like this requires you doing your own research to even get to that point to find these alternative media outlets. Um, right. And so those are the people that are more informed. Um, unfortunately, you then have to you know, try to convince the other people. And often it's, it's very sticky doing that right. in my experience. Yeah. But that's why there's other resources out there. Um, you know, like I have my website, medicineuncensored.com. You got to slow that down. Yeah. <laughs> people got to hear that. Tell them slowly. Sometimes <laughs> I talk too fast. Yeah. yeah. It's medicineuncensored.com. And it's a website I started back in April, um, you know, after I was seeing a lot of censorship in this space, which you know, censorship in medicine is kind of unusual, you know, especially if it's coming from doctors. But um, so my site is kind of captures a lot of the news that is not being talked about or might even be blatantly censored. Um, you know, my first experience with censorship, if you want to go into that for just a couple seconds, was actually with that Google document that we published that show that, you know, suggested hydroxychloroquine as a potential therapeutic for COVID-19. Google actually took that document down, wow, which was incredible because, you know, it triggered, you know, especially after the president talked about worldwide studies of it. Yeah. So you, you couldn't even say that it was a, it was a phony document or anything. It, it, you know, it was actually just quoting the evidence that was coming out of South Korea and China and South of France. It was quoting in vitro evidence. That's all it did. But it was taken down. And it was actually interesting. They finally put it back up. But it wasn't until we did that frontline doctors talk in yeah. D.C., that kind of white, white coat summit. And I, I announced it, and I think the, you know, those big tech companies had their big censorship hearing or whatever, congressional hearing right afterwards. And so I think they thought it would look bad if that was still uh, yeah. banned. Yeah. So that, that finally went back up. But it's been a tremendous amount of censorship since then. Yeah, the, the, that Frontline Doctors video is we played a three- or four-minute clip in one of our fireside chats, and they removed the entire chat. And I actually have the, the letter here that it's so interesting and – I mean, if this gets removed, and then we'll, we'll figure it out. But uh, th- this was the reasoning that our, our media tyrants told us was YouTube does not allow content that spreads medical misinformation that contradicts the World Health Organization. And so I, I just think it's really interesting that they use those two terms. Medical mi- misinformation is one thing, but not, it's not just that, it, that they think it's medical misinformation. That's not what it has to do with it has to do with the fact that it contradicts an organization. 
Because you would think that medical misinformation would be enough, right? Yeah, we, we remove video, videos that spread medical misinformation, but no, that, that's not really what, it's, what they're talking well, about. Well, the problem that they face is they, it's hard for them to call it medical misinformation because you have a group of doctors saying something, and then you have you know, some fact checker who probably doesn't know anything about medicine right. you know, on Twitter and Google that's been removing it. So it's hard to right. say that he's there, he or she is the right. great decider of medical misinformation. <laughs> and then you're absolutely right. They then say, well, it contradicts the World Health Organization. And both the CEO of YouTube um, as well as Mark Zuckerberg has said this, if it contradicts the World Health which is very interesting because the World Health Organization is probably, you know, it's been more wrong than it's been right throughout this entire pandemic yep. right. from the get-go. And they yeah, had a 50-50 right. chance on a lot of these things and they blew it. Yep. They yeah. either, you know, no human-to-human transmission. Oh, wait, okay, actually there's human-to-human. Yeah. You know, no masks, masks, maybe masks. They just flip-flopped yeah. all over in that one, so they can't be right. Um, you know, no travel bans. Okay, maybe travel bans. And so I, to use them as like the gold standard of, of you know, medical information is, is yeah. you know, it's, it's sad. It's, not, it's, it's kind of hilarious, but yeah. sad. Yeah. The, the one thing I was going to say is we grabbed those graphs that we used in today's presentation off your Twitter feed, and there was so much great information on there. I know Micah's going to put it in our notes section of the... Uh, in the description, yeah. In the description of this YouTube video, but can you tell it to us so that uh, people can hear it? For our technically challenged our, folks. Yeah, technically challenged, yeah. Oh, just my, my Twitter handle? Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. So it's James Tadaro MD. So James, and my last name is spelled T as in Tom, O, D as in dog, A, R, O, and then MD. Um, that's where I put a lot of my, my content out there. Um, fortunately, I haven't actually been censored much on Twitter, so that's why I still kind of actively use it as much as I do. Um, it seems like it's still my best outlet for kind of getting a lot of this information out there. And, and it's, I found it helpful, at least, because uh, you know, some of the responses are actually really insightful. And I have a huge network of people that contact me privately that uh, kind of point me in the direction of interesting subject matter and topic material as well. And then we kind of discuss it privately as well. Um, so that's kind of where I put a lot of my uh, insights out there. Well, we're, we're coming to the top of the hour, and I, I think – what I'd like to close with is we had the chance to, I asked you if you're a churchgoer, you said, yes, I'm Catholic and uh, your parish is meeting out in the parking lot. Uh, And then I told you a little bit about what we've been undergoing here. And and then you heard the fact we've been wide open, no social distancing, no mass since May 31st. I, I, I want you to honestly answer this question and don't answer it along the lines of, of theology, meaning Protestant and Catholic. Okay. (laughs) Um, if you were invited and you, you, to, to come to God Speak Calvary Chapel and yet you heard I was a good preacher or we were having a, a guest you really wanted to hear, um, knowing that we're in the middle of this pandemic and uh, you know that we're not doing social distancing, but we have ionizers and UV lights in our air ducts and hand sanitizer and we're not wearing masks. Doctor, would you, would you, would you come to our church on a Sunday when we're packed to the rafters with people? Absolutely. <laughs> I think that's a good way to yeah. end it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, that, and I, I'd love to hear you speak actually in person sometime. Yeah. So that might be a reality at some point. Soon. Yeah. 
Well, and, awesome. and, and I, I was going to set you up because we would love to have you yeah. come and share if you're in California and bring your wife, your three kids. We'll put you up. We'll love on you. It, it's re- and especially, listen, the winters in Michigan, I understand, are not pleasant. <laughs> California, we put up. Oh, with, I'll be out there. Don't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> we put up with unbearable taxes because we get the weather. Yeah. So It uh, is beautiful. I spent a lot of time in Southern California. I love it. I just yeah. don't like a lot of the policies there, yeah. especially now. Yeah. Yeah, well, but I'm, I definitely plan on coming out there. Good. Yeah. Then you, you'll be our guest, and we would love to have the congregation meet you and have you come and share, and we, we'd be honored. So I'll, I know you're busy. Thank you for your time. You're, you're sought after. Thank you for all the work you do. Uh, consider this uh, a church family in California that prays for you and appreciates you. And uh, you're fighting a good fight. We're, we're grateful for you. So thank you, Doc. Thanks so much for having me, Rob, and everyone. It was great meeting you guys. All right. Thank you. Uh, and, and maybe maybe we can have you on again soon, but I don't want to push it. But, you know. <laughs> I'd be open to it. Oh, yeah, I love awesome. it. All right. Awesome. Well, awesome. thank you. Bless you, and, and have a lovely evening. Thanks. All right. You as well. Take care, everyone. All right. Bye. Bye. Pretty cool. Yep. Yeah. Great. Awesome guy. And that makes it, what, nine, nine doctors, doctors now? Nine doctors. Nine doctors. No, I always say no less than nine doctors because okay. sometimes I forget. But yeah. we'll And two psychologists. And... Not just doctors. I mean, these are brilliant folks. I mean, yeah. and, and we've had the whole spectrum. And uh, we've educated the congregation. We've seen the data. And, and listen, from day one, 150 episodes ago, mm-hmm. we haven't been wrong. Yeah, it's true. The doctors that have laid this out as we're going through all this misinformation and we're coming to this place, we're seeing it. Yeah. yeah. And, and everyone who's been tuning in, that's, we, I didn't go out and pay people to subscribe to this. Right. Uh, people, you even threw it out there at the last couple minutes and said, would you come to church? I'm going, guy, boy, that's a setup right, live. No. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, so think about that. But I knew his answer because no, th- this, this is a man who yeah. he gets it. Yeah. You know, a good attorney doesn't ask a question of his, <laughs> you know. But when but, you're confident. Yeah, when yeah. you're confident, you yeah. do it. So, Well, the other thing is all those doctors that we've had on, if you notice, they've all quoted numbers. They've all quoted studies. It's not a, just a bunch of opinions yeah. or They've all quoted scientific information yep. all the way back to Dr. Robin. Yep. Yep. So it's been awesome. So I, I hope you enjoyed that. I know I did. Uh, folks, it, we're just dispelling the misinformation that has created the panic and the fear. And again, I say to uh, those who could really do a wonderful work in our community, and, and I'm grateful there is a, a local publication now presenting the data. I wish all of them, and I'm, I'm starting to watch the Ventura County Star do that. There, mm-hmm. there was a really couple of good articles, but that, this is your job is to, is to dispel the fear in our community by doing your homework. You have a guy who has a full practice working hard and he dispels and does a little bit of investigative information. We had to go to court and then just ask the county for Freedom of Information Act to understand the difference between dying with and dying from. And the only thing that a local paper can put in is on a Twitter account of the editor. And, yeah. and, and that, that's all you're going to do to dispel the, the fear of our community? Work harder at that. People mm-hmm. need you to do this. And, and y- you're complicit because the misinformation, people have died because they don't have the therapeutics out there. Do your work. This is your job. And so I, I had to say that because I'm, I'm getting frustrated mm-hmm. by the opportunity we have to build our community as opposed to tear it apart and have everyone shaming one another in supermarkets and everywhere else. So mm-hmm. uh, that, that's where we are. All right. Um, and I'll calm down because it's the blessing time. Now. <laughs> let, me, let me pray. That'll also help. Lord, thank you for Dr. James Tadaro and for 
just the, the hard work and Lord, the, the brilliant mind you've given him and the ability to research and then Lord, uh, balanced too and relentless. And so Lord, thank you for the privilege of having him on tonight and dispelling the fears through truth so that folks can calm and quiet their spirits. And Lord, thank you for the confirmation that here you have a doctor that knows it, the evidence and says, yeah, I'd love to come to church anytime knowing what we do. And so, Lord, thank you for that. I ask your blessing and protection on him, his wife, his three kids. I pray for a peace upon our city and our county, healing, uh, especially in the divisions that have been created by the misinformation and, and the destruction to our businesses and our families and all that has transpired. We do pray comfort for the families who've lost loved ones, either having died from this or dying with it. Just the fact that they had to suffer a tragedy of a loss of a loved one and Lord, we, we thank you for what we now know and what we're responsible for. And so Lord, please, I pray you'd move upon the hearts of our leaders to, to lift this burden off of our backs so that we can get back to having our lives. And um, we're patient, but we're, we're, that patience is running thin. So Lord, please, let them realize that. Open their eyes to do the right thing. And so God, thank you for this evening. Bless all who have watched this and that it would just continue to go out across the nation. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, number six. Uh, 150 times we have had the privilege to bless you with this. And I, I think this is one of the highlights for me that we've been doing this 150 nights in a row. Mm -hmm. That the Lord bless you and keep you. And may the Lord make his face to shine upon you. And may the Lord be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 150 episodes. Well done. Oh, don't leave me hanging. Oh, oh. <laughs> and one for you guys. Thank you. We went from zero to where we are today because of your faithfulness. And uh, I, I want this whole thing to lift. Um, but you've given us this platform and we'll continue to use it for truth. God bless you guys. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you tomorrow night.